Hello, this is Andrew Womack, and this tape is a special teaching that I did on television, and we are taking the teaching directly from the television. Therefore, you may hear some statements that may sound not like a typical cassette that I put out, but I believe that if you will listen, you'll still be able to get the message and that it will be a blessing to you. Welcome to our Thursday's broadcast of the Gospel Truth. Today I am going to be teaching about John the Baptist and how he began to doubt his whole life and his faith in the Lord and how Jesus dealt with his doubts. This is actually the fourth tape in a new four-tape album that I have entitled A Sure Foundation. I've been ministering on this for weeks, and like I've already said, this is actually the very first teaching I do when new students come to our Karis Bible College. Uh, it is previously called the Colorado Bible College here in the United States, but we've now uh, changed the name to, uh, you know, so it can be compatible with all the rest of our Bible colleges in England and Kenya and Portugal and Russia. But anyway, we teach this very first thing about the importance of God's Word in our life. And I just want to illustrate how Jesus had this exact same principle. He knew the power of the Word of God and how it is the greatest antidote against doubt and unbelief. And it's illustrated in the way that He treated John the Baptist. So in Luke chapter 7 and in verse 18 it says, "...and the disciples of John showed him all these things." that these things that it's talking about is Jesus had just commissioned His disciples and sent them out two by two. And they went out and they started producing miracles. They started seeing the dead raised, devils cast out, blind eyes open, not only through Jesus personally, but also through His disciples. And uh, this is what it's referring to, that the disciples of John came and showed Him all of these things. Now at this time, John the Baptist had been thrown into prison. And the Scripture isn't exactly clear on this, but from what I understand, John the Baptist only had about like a six-month-long ministry. And he was so radical, he was so strong in his statements that he offended Herod the king because Herod married his sister-in-law, his brother's wife. And John the Baptist openly proclaimed that that was uh, immoral. It was illegal to do that. And so... Herod got mad and put John the Baptist in prison after like only a six-month ministry. And John the Baptist had been in prison. The Scripture doesn't say exactly how long, but I've gone to some effort trying to prove this. I can't prove it, but it was a minimum of six months he had been in prison, and it could have been up to like two years in prison at the time that this was happening. So here's John the Baptist in prison, He was hearing these reports of not only Jesus doing all of these miracles, but Jesus' disciples going out and doing miracles. And so he called two of his disciples to him, and he sent these two disciples to Jesus. And here's what he asked in verse 19. It says, And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Now, you know, it's amazing. I think that we too often skip over this and don't make much of this. But you've got to remember that this is John the Baptist who is doubting whether Jesus was the Christ. He says, are, he the, are you he that should come? Talking about, are you the Messiah? Or, or should we look for another? Now, this is a major deal. John the Baptist wasn't normal like most people would consider normal. 
John the Baptist was baptized with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, even while he was still in his mother's womb. He was filled, anointed, controlled by the Holy Spirit all through his growing up. He didn't do normal things like in our day and age. He didn't go to school with other kids. He didn't have, you know, the boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, the sibling rivalries. There was no other siblings in his family. He was an only child. He didn't have the interaction. The scripture says that he literally went out into the desert and remained in the desert until the day of his appearing to the nation of Israel. Now, we don't know for sure, but most people believe that he lived with a group of people called the Essens. These are the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls and put them in those caves. And this was a strict, strict, strict religious order. I've read a lot of things about them, and one of the things that stands out to me that they were so strict and so committed to God that on the Sabbath, the, you know, the law about you can't do any work, you can't do anything on the Sabbath day, the Essens literally had it in their writings that it was against their rules to have a bowel movement on a Sabbath day. You could be punished for it. That's how much they controlled themselves. These people were like the... And, and John was raised by these people in the desert. It wasn't a fun time. He didn't have a natural childhood. He didn't go through all falling in love or anything else. When he stayed in the desert for approximately 30 years. His life was focused on one thing. His parents had told him that the angel came and appeared unto Zacharias. It was a miraculous birth. It was prophesied that he was going to be the one to prepare the way before the Messiah. And he knew what his purpose was. The Holy Spirit had him focused on this. And he had no other pursuits, no other interests, no distractions, no diversions. He was focused on one thing, and that is that he was going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And at the age of 30, he just appeared. He didn't appear, you know, in the cities where the people were. It says he went out into the desert. There's not very many people going through the desert. You know, today, if you want to make an impact, if you want to catch fish, you go where fish are. But with John the Baptist, it was totally miraculous the way he did things. He just walked out into the desert and started preaching to the snakes and to the scorpions. And I believe that some traitor or something came by, heard him. God touched his heart. He was so touched he went and got all of his other traitor friends and brought a whole crowd out. They began to share with others. And pretty soon, within just six months period of time, the scripture says that all of the people out of Judea, Samaria, all of the regions round about, multiple nations were touched by God by a man who wasn't wearing fancy suits. It wasn't his polished demeanor. It wasn't the fact that he was in the population centers. He was out in the desert. But in a very short six-month period of time, he had stood the world on its ear with what message? The message that Jesus is the Christ. And when Jesus walked in front of him, he recognized Jesus as being the Messiah. He saw the heavens open. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in a bodily shape. And uh, he heard an audible voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And John the Baptist was so convinced that this is the Messiah that he even told his own disciples, Andrew and Peter, to follow Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. When the scribes and Pharisees came out against John and tried to get him by saying, don't you realize that more people now are following Jesus than are following you? 
What they were doing was trying to play on his ego and try and drive a stake in between Jesus and John. And uh, John the Baptist says, I told you I wasn't the Messiah. I'm only the messenger in front of the Messiah. And he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and undo the latchet of his sandal. John the Baptist knew Jesus was the Christ and four different times publicly stated that Jesus was the Christ. And yet, now here's this exact same man who has been in prison for at least six months, possibly two years, and now he's doubting whether Jesus is the Christ. See, if you aren't careful, you could just read over this and say he's asking a question, but you couldn't, you might miss the severity of it. This was, this was severe. You know what it meant if Jesus wasn't the Christ? Like I said, John the Baptist wasn't normal like anybody else. He didn't enjoy any childhood fun, uh, playmates. He didn't have boyfriend, girlfriend relationships. He had never been married. His whole life was given to one thing, and that's preparing the way for the Messiah. And if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, then John the Baptist took the anointing, the gift that was on his life, and led multiple nations after the wrong person. This was not only doubting who Jesus was, but it was doubting who he was. His whole life was on the line. This was paramount. This was serious. Man, this this is amazing when you really meditate on it. For John to admit this, to send two of his disciples to Jesus and ask, Are you the Christ? John was in a crisis situation. How did Jesus respond? Look at this in uh, Luke chapter 7 and verse 20. It says, And when the men were come unto him, they said, John Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Now, how did Jesus respond? Jesus understood the severity of this. Jesus knew what John was going through. Jesus understood much more than what I've been able to describe to you. And yet, how did he respond to John being in a crisis situation? It says in verse 21, And in that same hour... He cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Then said Jesus unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. That was his answer. Actually... As you think about this, he didn't even answer them directly. He waited about an hour, cured all of these people, and then basically told them back, told them to go back to John and tell them what they'd seen and heard and specifically mention that the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the lame walk, and John will be blessed if he isn't offended in me. What kind of an answer is that? You know... I have been in situations where I've actually doubted my calling. I've doubted things. And I've gone to God and I've gone to some of God's messengers trying to seek reassurance. And if I would have gotten a response like this, if somebody would have just ignored me for an hour, left me sitting in their waiting room, and then when they come in and say, just go back and tell your master that, man, this is happening and this is happening, and he'll be blessed if he'll just continue to operate in faith. What kind of an answer is that? You know, when I read this for many years, I thought, Lord, this does not seem like an appropriate response to John the Baptist, the guy who opened up the door, drew the crowds, and prepared the way for you to come. 
It just doesn't seem like an appropriate response, especially later on when you hear what Jesus really had to say about John. Why didn't he say those real complimentary things? Well, I'll tell you, the answer to that question is precisely what we're teaching on is about the power of the Word, how important it is in your life. So we've been talking from Luke chapter 7 about where John the Baptist began to doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. And I tried to describe how, how serious this was. And Jesus knew the seriousness of it. John was not only doubting who Jesus was, but he was doubting who he was. He was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And if Jesus wasn't the correct Messiah, if John had thrown his weight and his clout behind the wrong man, then that means that John the Baptist was a failure. And so this was a serious situation. And when the disciples came to ask Jesus this, Jesus just ignored them for an hour. And then he told them, go tell John what you've seen and heard and blessed is he if he's not offended in me. Now this is especially uh, confusing when you see what happened after the disciples left. Look at this in Luke chapter 7, verse 24. It says, And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. And then he says some really complimentary things. But notice it says that after they were departed. He didn't say this while they were still within earshot. He didn't say this in a way that the messengers would hear it and then go back and tell John all of these things. Instead, his, his message to John was... Look, the blind eyes are open, the deaf ears are open, the dead are raised, and the lame walk, and you are blessed if you will believe and not be offended. And then after they left, he began to say this in verse 24. It says, What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? What this is is a sarcastic statement. Of course, the people didn't go out into the desert to see a reed shaken in the wind. You know, that's not what you go... I mean... I'm not sure exactly, but it's very possible that reeds, you know, around water and stuff like this, there aren't any reeds in the desert. In other words, what did you go out there for? Well, it wasn't for the reeds. It wasn't for the beautiful scenery. None of that stuff is out there in the desert. In verse 25, he says, But what went you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. Again, another sarcastic statement. What was it drawing you out into the desert? The fancy clothing of John? Certainly not. John the Baptist, the scripture says, was clothed with camel hair. And he ate his meal was locusts and wild honey. I mean, John the Baptist was bound to have been a sight. I mean, he was a hairy man. I could just imagine. I, heard, I remember uh, one time reading that the, the, uh, the only thing that smells worse than camel hair is wet camel's hair. And you know what? John the Baptist was constantly in the water. I mean, this guy probably stunk. He had on this old camel hair thing. He had a beard, and he had probably honey and locusts stuck to his beard. I mean, this guy was a character. And the Lord's saying, what, what drew you out into the wilderness? Was it his fancy clothes? Certainly not. Those who have fancy clothes are in king's houses. They aren't out into the wilderness. And then in verse 26, he says, But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, Among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, as I read this story, 
You know what? Those words that Jesus said in verses 26 through 28 about John the Baptist being the greatest prophet who had ever walked on the face of the earth. Did you know that that put him in a category that was above Moses, above Elijah, above Isaiah, above anybody you want to mention, David, the king, Solomon, anybody you want to mention, Jesus is saying John the Baptist was the greatest man that had ever walked on the face of the earth. Now, if John the Baptist was experiencing doubt and he was needing some reassurance, why didn't Jesus say these things to his disciples and send them back? Jesus was the most influential man in that part of the world at that time. Everyone who had heard about Jesus, they were forsaking jobs, families, everything to come out and hear him. Jesus was seeing the blind healed, the dead raised, all of these kind of miracles. Jesus was the center of attention. He had more influence than anybody. What would it have done if Jesus, the most important man on the face of the earth, had have said, John the Baptist is the greatest man that had ever lived up until this period of time? You know what? That would have uh, stoked his fire. Man, that would have excited him. That would have blessed John the Baptist. You know, I remember a time in my own life where I'd been ministering the Word of God, and in some ways things were going good, but I mean, I just wasn't seeing the turnout that I knew God wanted me to have. We were struggling financially. I was doing everything I knew to do, and it just didn't seem like things were working. And I remember going to a conference at uh, Calvary Cathedral in Fort Worth, Texas, where Bob Nichols is pastor. And Bob Nichols now is a great friend of mine. He's on my board of directors, and I really appreciate Bob and Joy. But back then, I had met Bob Nichols one time, and it was a very negative situation. A neighbor wanted to get the two of us together, and I wouldn't impose on this man's friendship with Bob Nichols to meet him. And so I said no. And so what he finally did was invite Bob and me over to his house for supper and didn't tell the other ones that anybody else was going to be there. And when we got there, he threw us together, locked us in a room and tried to make us fellowship. And Bob Nichols was very gracious to me. He was, he was kind, but I was super embarrassed and, uh, it was just a negative meeting. And I mean, I thought after something like that, if Bob Nichols ever heard my name, he'd go the other direction. So that was the only contact I'd ever had with Bob Nichols. And I went to his church for this conference, and they had Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagin, all of the big-name speakers up there. And these guys were prophesying to each other. They were all getting words from the Lord. And um, I remember sitting in that auditorium with 2,000 people there, and I was like 10 people in from the aisle. I was sitting right in the middle, and uh, it was during the song service, and they said, go around and greet someone. And I was feeling so small and insignificant, thinking, God, I need help. I need somebody to encourage me. It's similar to what John the Baptist was feeling. I don't believe it was near that bad, but it was similar. And I was praying for help. And you know what happened? Bob Nichols, the pastor of that church, got off of the platform. Somehow he saw me out of that crowd of 2,000, came down off the platform, ran back there, and like I said, there's 10 people in from the aisle. This wasn't convenient. And he excused himself, pushed himself through all of these people, got up to me and just started hugging me. And he wouldn't let go. It wasn't just a charismatic hug. He started saying, Brother, I love you. God loves you. Don't quit. Hold on. And he wouldn't let go of me. He just held me and ministered to me. And then he got up and went back up to the front of the auditorium. You know what that did? It encouraged me. 
it blessed me to just think that this man who was hosting this whole deal and was very well known came back, singled me out, ministered to me. He didn't have to do that. I took it as an expression of God's love for me. And it really ministered to me. And as I read this story about John the Baptist, I thought, Jesus, why didn't you say all of these complimentary things about John while John's messengers were there so that he could hear it? To me, it didn't seem like he, he uh, gave John what he needed. He just said, tell him what you've seen and heard, and blessed is he if he's not offended in me. And I tell you, I just didn't understand that for a long period of time. For a long period of time, when I would read this passage of Scripture, it would actually upset me. And I would think, God, I just don't understand this. I don't relate to it. But then one day I was reading over in Isaiah. And let me share this passage of Scripture with you. I believe it's Isaiah chapter 35. And these are passages of Scripture that John the Baptist was familiar with because he quoted from, from Isaiah. And you've got to remember, in John the Baptist's day, these things weren't written in chapter and verse. They were written on scrolls. And for him to be able to quote Scripture, and it didn't have a chapter and verse distinction, that means he knew the book of Isaiah completely. He, he knew these prophecies. And in Isaiah chapter 35, this is a prophecy about the Messiah and what would happen when he came. And specifically, it's uh, speaking to the messenger who was going to prepare the way before the Messiah. And John the Baptist knew this. He quoted from over here in Isaiah chapter 40. So anyway, here's what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. And, and the messenger who prepared the way before the Messiah, John the Baptist, was supposed to know these scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 35... Verse 3, it says, Strengthen ye the weak hands, and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. You know, as I was reading this one day, I just thought, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit reminded me that this is what Jesus told the disciples of John to go back and tell him. Look at this again in Luke chapter 7, verse 22. It says, Then Jesus answered and said unto them, Go your way, tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. What finally dawned on me was that instead of John getting simply some kind of a kudo from Jesus, some kind of a feel good that would bless him for a day or for a week, he sent him back to the Word, to the very scriptures that prophesied what would happen when the Messiah would come. It said, then when that happened, the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf would be unstopped, the lame man would leap as a heart. Well, over here, he, he went out and in the same hour, he healed people who were blind, lame, deaf, and he threw in the raising from the dead of a person. You know what Jesus did? He fulfilled Isaiah chapter 35. He didn't ignore John's messengers. He didn't take his cry for help lightly. What he did, he fulfilled the Word of God in such a miraculous fashion. I mean, he did it all in one hour, not over a lifetime, in one hour, and threw in the raising of the dead just so nobody would make a mistake 
and think it was coincidence and says, go back and tell John, in a sense, I fulfilled the prophecies. He sent him back to the Word. So today I'm going to continue ministering on the subject of God ministering to John the Baptist's doubt. He began to start wondering whether Jesus was actually the Christ or not. We were taking this teaching out of Luke chapter 7. And after being in prison for anywhere between six months and one year, John the Baptist, who at one time saw a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus and an audible voice out of heaven say, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. John had seen those things, plus he had had the Holy Spirit tell him in advance that the one you see the Holy Spirit descend upon is the one that I've anointed. He had all of these signs. He had all of these things. He was absolutely confident at one time that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet after about six months to two years in prison, he began to doubt everything. Now before I go any further, let me just dig into this a little bit deeper and show something here about doubt. John the Baptist was absolutely convinced at one time that Jesus was the Messiah. But after being in prison for a period of time, these doubts arose and he actually sent his ministers, uh, some of his disciples, to go ask Jesus whether he was the real Christ. I believe that what was taking place here is, it says in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And you know what I really believe was happening? John the Baptist knew he was called by God to prepare the way of the Messiah. And if John the Baptist is like everybody else in his day, they saw the first and the second coming of the Lord as one event. As a matter of fact, Jesus even quoted from Isaiah chapter 61 when he says, "...the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor." to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped right there. But over in Isaiah chapter 61, it goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. And we now know that, see, Jesus came to bring in this new covenant and preach the gospel. And then there is at least this 2,000-year church age in between that first advent and the second advent where the day of the Lord. But in Scripture, in the Old Testament, they were kind of run together. The church age wasn't real pronounced. It wasn't real prominent in Old Testament Scripture. And so anyway, the people in Jesus' day constantly were expecting to see not only the Messiah come and make an atonement for our sin, but they were expecting to see Him set up His physical kingdom and rule with a rod of iron and destroy all opposition. And the Jewish nation in particular was expecting their deliverance from Roman rule. They were expecting that the Jewish nation, of course, would have their king, the Messiah, rule and control the earth. And so... Uh, There are many different things in Scripture where you see people asking those questions. This is my own surmising, but I believe that John the Baptist knew he was called by God to prepare the way of the Messiah. He at one time believed fully, completely, with zero reservation that Jesus was the Messiah. But after anywhere from six months to two years in prison... And seeing Jesus, just he was doing miracles, he was healing people, and he was preaching about relationship with God. But he wasn't countering the Roman authority. He hadn't established a physical kingdom. As a matter of fact, Jesus was teaching just the opposite. Jesus was teaching, man, turn the other cheek when somebody does something wrong. And I believe that what was happening with John the Baptist was he had false expectations. 
And hope deferred makes the heart sick. This is the reason you've got to make sure that when you're hoping for something that it's really a God-ordained deal. I believe that John the Baptist sitting in prison expected Jesus to rule and to overthrow the Roman government, to liberate the Jews from Roman occupation. This wasn't happening, and because of it, he began to start having doubts. This same thing happens to you all the time. That, you know, if you got a job and if you expected to be promoted in six months period of time, and if it had been two years and you were still not promoted, I can guarantee you there'd begin to be some doubts about, man, did God really lead me into this job? What is really happening here? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so John began to doubt whether Jesus was the real Messiah. And I went through all of this yesterday, but I tell you, to me, this is just powerful stuff that God has used in my life. John the Baptist sent his disciples, and instead of Jesus saying all of these complimentary things about John being the greatest person who had ever lived on the face of the earth, he didn't say those things until John's disciples had left and gone back. What he told John's disciples were is to go, this is in Luke chapter 7, verse 23, Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Well, that didn't seem like a very good answer, especially with you, when you compare that with what he said after the disciples were gone. And I I puzzled over this for many years until I read Isaiah chapter 35. I shared those scriptures on our program yesterday. And one of the prophecies that was given to John the Baptist, John the Baptist was familiar with this passage of scripture because he quoted from verses all around Isaiah chapter 35. And in Isaiah 35, it says that when the Messiah has come, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame man will leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. And so that was a prophecy about the Messiah. You know what Jesus did? Instead of ignoring or shunning John the Baptist when he had a problem, instead what he did was give John his very best which was the Word. Jesus fulfilled the Scripture. In one hour's time, it says right here, He opened the eyes of a blind person. He he opened the ears of a deaf person. He caused a man who was lame to walk, a man who couldn't speak to speak, and He threw in a person being raised from the dead. Amen. Just so that nobody would make a mistake and think that this was coincidental that all these things happened. He fulfilled every prophecy of the Messiah performing miracles and threw in a person being raised from the dead for extra and then told the messengers, go back and tell John what you've seen. And what I believe with all of my heart is that when John heard this, he immediately was reminded of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 35. The Holy Spirit quickened to him that Jesus is the Messiah because, look, he's fulfilled the requirements. Now, what do you think would have blessed him the most? Somebody coming back and saying, man, Jesus, the most influential man on the face of the earth, is saying that you are the greatest man that's ever been born in history up to this time. Now, would that be better or have proof that the Scripture is true? and that Jesus is the Messiah because He fulfilled Scripture. Well, with most people today, the way we become so touchy-feely and we are so emotional, I think probably most people watching this program or listening by radio would probably go for, well, I'd like those nice things to be said about me. I'd rather have had Him say that. But you know, emotion from things like this, they wear off. 
This is one of the major problems in our society today is that we just always want to feel good. We don't care if it's right or not. We just want to feel a certain way. And you know what? We, we go to things, we fantasize, we watch entertainment and stuff that isn't based in reality just to get this feeling of contentment and stuff. You need to recognize that truth is more powerful than feeling, than emotions, than any of these kind of things. If Jesus would have just given John the Baptist some kind of a feeling, that thing would have worn off in the next week. John's messengers would have been right back about he's lost his goosebump. Can you say something else that will really make John the Baptist feel good? But see, John had been rooted. He grew up on the Word of God. He knew the Word of God. When he was asked questions by the scribes and the Pharisees, he quoted from God's Word. He knew the Word of God. God's Word is what motivated him and, and got him directed in the right direction. And when he began to doubt, what did Jesus do? He put him back on the Word of God. Boy, I can't overemphasize how important this is. You know, in my own personal life, I gave an example yesterday about how I had a man, Bob Nichols, come minister to me in a way that really helped me in a time when I was fighting some discouragement. But with few exceptions, most of the time, I don't get prophecies. I could go to a meeting and every person on my row could get a prophecy and I'd be the one that they skip over. I don't have people do things like that to me very often. And at first, I was kind of bothered about this, about God, what's the matter? Is something wrong with me? Why is it that you aren't giving me all of these words like everybody else gets? How come I don't have visions and dreams and all of these kind of things? And you know what the Lord spoke to me? He says that my highest is for dealing with you by the Word, letting you believe the Word of God. That is the strongest, greatest uh, realm of faith that you can get into. And he says, I can deal with you on a lower level, but actually it was because the Lord was trying to get me to walk in His best that He wasn't giving me all of these things. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not trying to criticize dreams and visions and prophecies and things like that. I'm saying there's times that I've had those things, but it's not often, and the Lord has tried to move me beyond that. I actually, that's for you when you're struggling, but as the stronger you get in the Lord, I believe the more and the more He wants you to walk by faith. And this is the reason He responded to John the Baptist the way that He responded to him. Not because He didn't respect him, it was because He respected John so much. He said down here that John was the greatest man, the greatest prophet that had ever been born of a woman. And that is a tremendous statement. He respected John the Baptist. He respected him so much he wasn't wanting to just stroke him and give him some kind of a feeling that would be temporary and wear off. Instead, he referred him back to the Word of God. And I can tell you that that's what God's wanting to do in your life. Some of you right now are struggling with doubt, maybe about your whole purpose, about what everything that you feel God's called you to do, and you're just looking for some kind of a feeling. You're praying for a dream. You're wanting some person to come and do something. What you need to be doing is going back to God's Word and finding out through the Word of God, hearing God speak to you through His Word. That's what will change your life. And that's the point that we're trying to get across. So we've been talking about how John the Baptist began to doubt whether Jesus was the Messiah. 
And how did Jesus respond to this? Basically, he pointed him back to the Word of God. Instead of Jesus just saying something that would bless him and give him a feeling, what he did was referring back to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 35 that said when the Messiah came, he would open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf, cause the lame man to leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb to sing. And Jesus fulfilled every one of those miracles in one hour's period of time to prove that He was the Messiah. In other words, He went back to the Word of God. And I tell you, this is what I believe God's wanting to drive us to, is to get us to where we are putting more emphasis on the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God than on circumstances, on feelings, on confirmations. I talk to so many people that they say, man, you know, if the Lord spoke to them, they want two visions, three dreams, four prophecies to confirm it. And I'm, you know... Everybody's responsible to God on their own. But for me, that is just not the way I function at all. If God can tell me something through the Word, then I'll make sure I study the Word so that it's not taking something out of context, that I've got a true impression of the Word of God. But if the Word of God speaks something to me, that settles it. And I don't care if a dream, a vision, or anybody prophesies. Matter of fact, I have had prophecies and dreams and visions completely opposite what God told me. Man, I don't want to take time on today's program to go back into all of that, but I had a major thing happen where I had had two dreams that I thought were demonic, and I began to start rebuking them, and then I had a woman walk up to me in a uh, Dairy Queen that was 300 miles from where I lived. I didn't know a person there. And this woman walked in out of the blue and says, God speaks once, yea, twice, in visions, in dreams of the night, when deep sleep falls upon man. That's a quotation from the book of Job. And then she turned around and she says, you've been rebuking those dreams as being from the devil and they're from God. And when she said that, man, I mean, fear, panic came all over me. How could this be? And I went back and I seriously started considering submitting to these dreams. Basically, it was about my total destruction and how I was going to be like an invalid. I had a man, a minister come across my path. And uh, he was saying it was God that gave him seven incurable diseases. And see, this is back when I was first getting started, before I was established in the fact that God's a good God and He doesn't do that. And so I was beginning to believe that, but here was a man who was supposed to be very respected, had seven incurable diseases, and I started listening to him preach that God did this to him. I went out to eat with him, and a person I was with told him about these two dreams, this woman coming in, giving the prophecy. This man began to prophesy and say, you're going to be a human vegetable for eight years. You'll be in a vegetable state. You're going to be brain dead and be kept alive on... uh, machines only. And then after you come out of this, you're going to be stronger than ever before. And I was so weak in the Lord that, you know what, I was, if that's what the Lord wanted for me, I was willing to do it. And I was that close to doing it. I was that close to humbling myself and saying, I receive it. And at that time, I had an incurable disease. This is right before my wife and I got married. It's been 30 years ago, and I was diagnosed with hepatitis. And uh, it was the type of uh, hepatitis that, you know, they can't cure. But if you just lay still in a bed for like six weeks, your body recovers. But if you don't lay still, if you go out and continue, it could kill you. And anyway, all of these things were happening. And I was thinking, well, you know what? Maybe this is the way it's going to happen. I'm just going to continue to pour concrete for a living. 
And uh, as I do, this thing could overcome me. And I was that close to submitting to all of this stuff. And then that man, the devil will always overplay his hand. That man came out and said, you know, the worst part about it all is not just the diseases and not the fact that I'm facing death every day, but the worst part is God has closed his word to me. And for eight years, I've never opened the Bible. I never studied. God won't let me study the word. He's shut me off from his word. And when he said that, I didn't know much, but I knew God would not close his word to me. I knew the promises in the word of God about how important it was and how you have to feed on this daily. And I remember standing up here. I was 18 years old, or I guess by that time I was 20 something years old, but I was standing in front of this man who is respected, the pastor of the church, all the leaders. And I stood up and I said, you're all wrong. I said, I don't care what you say. God will never shut his word to me. I renounced the whole thing, stood up and and walked out and left that church. Uh, I, was, I was encouraged to leave that church after that. And you know what? That saved me from that. So anyway, the point that I'm making is, see here, some people want visions and dreams, and that's what they're going to base things on. If a vision and dream confirms what God has already said to me through the Word of God, I'll accept it. But if a vision or a dream, even if an angel comes to me and says anything contrary to God's Word, I'm not buying it. I'm not accepting it. And I mean, I've been through this more than once. And yet most people, see, are looking for these other things. I've had people come up to me before like this and to say, Brother, do you have a word for me? And they got their Bible right under their arm. God, do you have a word for me? And I just want to say there's thousands of words right there. Man, this is God speaking to you. But most people don't take this as being the infallible word of God. They just think it vaguely represents God and they use it. They pull a little thing out of a daily loaf bread as they walk out the door and read a scripture and it makes them feel good. Most people haven't based their life on the word. They haven't committed themselves to it. See, most of us would have gone for what Jesus said about, boy, you're the most important person that's ever lived on the face of the earth. We would have rather had that than him fulfill a scripture and just say, believe or don't believe. But see, Jesus respected John so much, he referred him back to the Word. And I'm telling you, if you're struggling in doubt in any area of your life today, what you need isn't some type of an emotional thing. What you need isn't a prophecy, a vision, or a dream. What you need is to get back into the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And faith will drive doubt and unbelief out of your life if you absorb yourself with it. Brothers and sisters, we've made the Christian life too hard. We think it's so hard to serve God. Well, it's only hard if you aren't meditating in the Word day and night. The Bible says, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, that if you meditate in the Word day and night, then you will have good success and you will make your way prosperous. It didn't say you might, it says you will. Actually, I've got a tape set entitled Effortless Change that shows if you just put God's Word first place in your life, God's Word would instantly, or not instantly, automatically produce everything that you need. It would just come effortlessly. Have you ever seen a tree groan and moan and shake and then boom, there's an apple? That's not the way that they produce apples. It's just the nature of that tree to produce apples. But it takes time and it takes being an apple tree all of the time. You can't be a tree one day and then quit and go out and do something else. You've got to stay planted. You've got to stay rooted. You can't ever move. 
You got to stay right there. And if you'll do that, it'll just instantly begin to start, or excuse me, not instantly, but automatically produce fruit of itself. And this is what we've got to learn in the Christian life. The Word of God is what He wants to be the foundation of everything that we do. And the reason most people are not having more success is because they have not put the priority on the Word of God the way that they should. That's just simple, but it's true. Let me share a passage with you out of Matthew chapter 8. This is where Jesus ministered to a centurion. He, his servant was sick, and the centurion asked Jesus to heal his servant. So Jesus started to follow the messengers of the centurion. And then the centurion said, Lord, I don't need you to come under my roof. All you got to do is speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. And he says, I have men under me, and I say unto one, go, and to another come, and he comes, and do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, this is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that follow, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Jesus marveled at this man's faith. The only time he ever marveled at anybody's faith was at this centurion. What made him marvel? I believe it was the fact that this centurion didn't need Jesus to come into his house. He didn't have to see him. He didn't need to see Jesus wave his hand over the spot or do anything like that. All he had to do was have Jesus speak the word only. It was a man who understood the power and the authority in the word of God. Now, in contrast to that, look over here in John chapter 20. This is after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And in John chapter 20, he appeared unto some of his disciples and showed that he was alive. And they told Thomas, the one who was called Didymus or the doubter. And uh, Thomas was told that Jesus was raised from the dead. But Thomas said this in verse 25. He says, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, and after eight days... Again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus said, Thomas, there's a greater blessing on people who believe without seeing, without physical evidence, that God's word is their evidence. Contrast Thomas's faith with that centurion faith, a faith that made Jesus marvel, and then a faith that Jesus said, man, there's a greater faith in this. You'd be blessed even more if you would just believe the report instead of having to see it, feel it, touch it, taste it before you can believe it. There's a lot of people watching this program right now or listening by radio that you know what, you are in doubt and you're wanting something to come and remove your doubt and basically you are looking for some way that is carnal, external, instead of just going to the Word of God and having that witness in your heart. What I'm trying to do today is to tell you that God's best for you is to refer you back to the Word of God. You need to go to God's Word. You need to start studying the Word and remove your doubts like that. Welcome to our Monday's broadcast of the Gospel Truth. 
Basically, let me say that what I've been on in this last tape, in this four-tape album, is just talking about how John the Baptist, uh, who was the greatest prophet that had ever walked on the earth prior to Jesus, even he experienced doubt. And in the midst of his doubt, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, was he really the Christ? Basically, you could say it this way, he was asking Jesus to help remove his doubts. He wanted to believe. He had already professed that Jesus was the Christ, but he was struggling with doubt. So he was asking Jesus for help. And the way Jesus helped him was to refer him back to the Word. And then after his disciples left, Jesus said all these complimentary things. Most of us would go for the compliments over the Word any day. You know, if I had two doors up here on a stage in front of you and one said feelings and the other one said fact, most of us would go for the feelings in a moment. Matter of fact, I've actually, I remember this one tape I was listening to where a woman was dealing with a girl who had terrible anger and resentment problems towards her parents. And the woman who was dealing with her said that she knew the parents and that she knew that the parents did not do anything wrong. The parents had never abused this girl, had always loved her, but they just had a, a strict standard. They didn't want her to do dope and alcohol and, and premarital sex the way that other kids did. And so therefore, the child interpreted this as them being restrictive and didn't love her and all of these things. And this woman who was ministering to her uh, on this tape said that, you know, I knew the parents. I knew that what she was feeling wasn't accurate but it was accurate to her because she felt it. And so she went ahead and ministered to this girl about forgiving her parents and learning how to let it go and stuff. And I, you know, I guess this was a flesh flash. I'm not saying this is the way it should be, but I got so mad I pulled that tape out of the tape recorder and threw it out the window. I, it just infuriated me that a person who knew what... The person they were dealing with wasn't reality. They were going to deal with it anyway because they felt it. In a sense, putting feelings above truth. The way I would have responded to that is, hey, you have misinterpreted all of this. You just think that because they said no to something that they're against you, and that's not it at all. And I'd try and have gotten rid of the root of this thing. Because, see, even if this girl received... Uh, ministry and got to feeling better and forgave her parents, well, then there would be something else come up. Somebody else would tell her no. She'd be denied something in her life, and she'd never deal with the root of the problem, which was her, her own self-centeredness and blindness. As long as you go through life thinking everybody else is your problem, you're never going to be free of problems. But when you understand it doesn't matter what other people do, it's how I respond to it, well, then you can begin to start receiving liberty. So anyway, my point is, if I had these two doors up here and one says you want to feel good, the other one's you want to be good, you want to be right, here's truth, here's fact, or here, let's feel right. Most people in our society would go for the feelings. And because of this, if we were facing someone who is expressing doubt and having the emotional trauma that goes with doubt, most of us would just put our arm around them and, you know, try and and make them feel something and not impart truth to them. And yet that's not the approach of Jesus. Jesus referred John back to the Word and gave him the Word. And this is what I'm trying to say, that for you to deal with your doubts, for you to succeed in life and overcome all of the things that come your way, you're going to have to get out of this 
thing of just wanting somebody to come along and every time you need a little boost, you got to pray, somebody comes across your path and always somebody got to be lifting you up. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There's times all of us need help. You aren't an island, so don't be too proud to take it, but don't get to where you expect it and don't Make your life codependent upon everybody else doing what's right and always saying the nice things about you. Go to the Word of God and let God's Word be the foundation. That's the point that we've been trying to communicate. Let me share this passage with you out of 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is the Apostle Peter speaking to these people. This is his second letter that he had written to these people. And he said this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 15, he says, Moreover, I will that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now, what Peter is doing right here, he he just said in the 15th verse, I'm endeavoring to write these things down so that after I die, you will still have a record of these things that I've told you. And why did he want to put a record down? He says, because we haven't spoken unto you just things that we devised. These aren't fables. These aren't uh, fairy tales. This is reality. And he says, this word that we have told you, the things that we've seen and heard are real. He's just trying to put a validation on his message. You know, it would be similar to me coming to your town. And if I went on radio and television, and if I said, man, God has given me a message for Chicago, Birmingham, Dallas, Fort Worth, wherever you're watching these programs around the world... If I came and said, God has appeared to me and I had a vision and three angels and two dreams. And man, I've got these things that God has spoken to me. And if I was to get on television and radio and promote that and hype it up and talk about this. Did you know you couldn't handle the people that would come? People would come by the thousands to somebody that had just had God appear to them and gave a specific word for their city or for something like that. And in a sense, see, this is what the... Apostle Peter was doing right here. He says, hey, the things I've been telling you, these aren't things I made up. And then he refers to a miraculous encounter. He's referring to what's listed in Matthew chapter 17, other places in Scripture, where Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they went up into a mountain. And then Jesus was transfigured before them. He literally started radiating light. And when Peter saw this, he fell on his face. And he also saw uh, Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus and and conversing with him about things that were going to happen at the crucifixion of Jesus. And when Peter saw this, he wanted to build three tabernacles. And about the time he said that, a cloud overshadowed them. It was the Shekinah glory of God. And an audible voice came out of that cloud and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And so, anyway, this is the example that he's referring to. He's saying, I know what I'm telling you is true. I know Jesus is the Christ because I saw him magnified. I saw him literally radiate light. He didn't reflect it the way Moses did. He just radiated. It came out of him. I saw the Shekinah glory of God that used to indwell, overshadow the the temple. 
I saw that. I heard an audible voice out of heaven come and say, this is my beloved son. He's referring to all these miraculous events. For what purpose? To validate that the message I'm preaching to you is true. Jesus is the Christ. I know it because of these miraculous things. But then look what he did right after that. He says in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Now, this is an amazing statement. Like I was saying, if I came to your town and said, God appeared to me, I've had this vision, I've had this dream, people would turn out by the thousands. But you know what? If I came and said, God has spoken to me through His Word, and man, God has taught me things from His Word that have changed my life, and they could change yours. Come to this meeting. You know what? You won't have as many people come out because not as many people put as much emphasis as much worth and value on the Word of God as they do a vision or an angel or something like that. But Peter here is saying we have a more sure word of prophecy. What could be more sure than seeing Jesus transfigured and seeing Moses and Elijah and the Shekinah glory of God and an audible voice of God? What can beat that? He says in verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation... You know what he's saying? We have something even better than these things I've told you about, and that's the Word of God. And the Word of God confirms that Jesus is the Christ. Boy, that's awesome. That rings my bell. You know what? There's a lot of people watching this program or listening that right now you just don't think the Word of God's that important. Again, if I had two doors up here, one is entitled the Word of God, the other one's entitled Visions and Dreams. Most of you would want the key to the one with visions and dreams, miraculous stuff. But you know what? If you would get hold of the Word of God, if you would begin to make that the foundation of your life and base your life on the foundation of God's Word, that's what would change you. That is God's system. And matter of fact, the reason that most of you don't have more visions and dreams and physical manifestations is because you couldn't handle it. You have to be mature in the Word of God to really be able to handle those kind of things. I tell you, this is a powerful truth that I'm sharing right here and one that most people don't have. I'm encouraging you today that you need to get hold of this revelation that God has given us the greatest gift outside of our personal salvation. The greatest thing after that is Him giving us a physical copy of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit who will interpret it to us and make this come alive on the inside of us. This is the greatest gift you could ever have and most of us just aren't fully appreciating it. We're trying to turn that around. So we've been talking about how that the Word of God has to be the foundation of any successful Christian life. If you're going to really prosper, you've got to know the Word of God, not know something about it, not be able to say, well, the pastor said that it's God's will to heal. You need to go to God's Word. God's Word needs to speak to you. You need to know these things direct from God. Man, I've said this so many ways during the last few weeks. Today's my last day to be teaching on this. And let me just give you an application of what we've just been talking about. We were talking about how that uh, Peter was saying that he knew the message he had was true because he saw Jesus glorified. He heard an audible voice from God. He saw Moses and Elijah in the Spirit talking to Jesus. And then he went on to say, I've got something even greater than that. We've got the written Word of God. That the Word of God is a more sure word of prophecy. If you would rather have the goosebump 
that's associated with some physical manifestation, then you had to have the assurance that God's Word has to give. Then you've got a problem in your life. You really do. I'm not saying that to hurt or injure anybody, but I'm saying that most people have not placed the proper value on God's Word. And you can prove that by just saying, how much time do you spend in it? How much time do you spend really studying the Word of God? Now, I'm aware that we go through seasons in our life. Often I'll tell people that, you know, when I was in Vietnam, I spent 16 hours a day for 14 months or 13 months studying the Word of God. And that's true. And I mean, it made a huge impact on my life, but I can't spend 13 hours a day now. Matter of fact, if I was to just spend 13 hours a day now reading the Bible, I think I'd be going against what God told me to do. So I'm not... I mean, you go through seasons, and if you're in a period of your life where you can just shut yourself up and get with God and get into the Word, power to you. It's not going to hurt you. It'll do nothing but help you. But I am not saying you have to just spend 13 hours a day studying it, but you do have to spend time in the Word of God. And then one of the greatest things you can do is meditate in those scriptures once you do it. You don't have to spend more than 20 or 30 minutes in the Word to be able to get enough material to meditate on for days or weeks. And this is how I spend a lot of my time in the Word. You know, I don't even know what I average on a daily basis. The last few days I've probably averaged more than an hour or two a day studying the Word, but I don't always do that. There's sometimes uh, I don't spend that much time at all. But you know what I have learned to do is that I listen to tapes on the way in. I meditate on things. I'm constantly thinking about the Word. I constantly keep my heart and mind. And to me, that's being in the Word. Did you ever think about this, that the early New Testament church didn't have a Bible the way that we do? Now, there were Old Testament scriptures, but they were in these large scrolls, and they were uh, confined in the synagogues that the Jew had, the average Christian did not have a copy of Scripture. And yet, they stayed in the Word constantly. You know what they were doing? They were just meditating on the things that Jesus said. The very first disciples didn't even have a copy of what Jesus had said. They were just going back and spending time praying and letting the Lord, the Holy Spirit, bring back to their remembrance things that Jesus had said. That was being in the Word. You don't have to have the Bible open like this and being reading to be in the Word, but keeping your mind stayed upon God and communicating with God in your heart through your thoughts is being in the Word if you are meditating on Scripture. Now, there are times that, sure, you need to pull out some dictionaries and things and dig into the Word and find out what it's really saying, but actually, the way I study the Word is I spend very little time digging like that But what I do is, just this last couple of days, there were some things that the Lord showed me, and I went to a number of different versions and stuff, and I looked those things up. I might have spent 30 minutes or an hour looking up some things, but then I spent a few hours, two or three hours, sitting back thinking about what I had just read. And I wasn't even, didn't have the Bible open. I was just thinking about it, letting these truths, these thoughts sink down on the inside of me. That is being in the Word of God. So I just wanted to say this to counter any misconceptions. I've been putting such an importance on the Word of God that some of you might think, well, I can't be in the Word of God 24 hours a day. I just can't fulfill this. It may seem overwhelming and you give up. But you know what? You can meditate constantly. Let Let me rephrase that. You do meditate constantly. You may not know it, but you do. You know, worry is nothing but meditation. 
It's meditating on something negative that might happen. Usually when you use the word worry, you're worrying about something that hasn't even come to pass yet. And it's and you can do your job. You can go to work. You can drive down the street. You can take your kids to school. You can have your kids at home. You can clean house. You can do all of these things. And yet never out of your mind and out of your heart is a worry about what are we going to do with the finances? What's going to happen with my physical body? What about this? What about the relationship? All that is is meditation. Worry is meditation. And you know what? In the same way that you can keep your mind stayed on negative things, you can also keep your mind stayed on positive things. You really can. Man, I go out and do all kinds of things. Matter of fact, one of the ways that I love to have relationship with the Lord, one of the things I enjoy the most is just to get in my pickup truck, plug in either a praise tape or a teaching tape and just drive. I'll drive eight hours and I'll meditate on things that God is speaking to me. If I'm really focused on something that the Lord's been speaking to me and I'm receiving direction about something, I'll usually put on a praise tape so that I don't have to literally sit there and focus my attention on what's being said to be able to, to, uh, you know, like a teaching tape where you've got to listen and focus on it. I'll just put on a praise tape and I'll go to singing with that. But in my mind, I'm just meditating on God. Here's what you're speaking to me. And I have a tremendous time. That's being in the word. So I'll go driving for eight hours. And you know what? I'm in the Word. I'm meditating on what God is speaking to me. I'm taking scriptures and things that He's revealing to me. That's being in the Word. You need to be in the Word exactly like we've been teaching. This is a more sure word of prophecy. But I'm just trying to encourage you that I I know that not all of you are able to spend hour upon hour upon hour sitting there reading the Word. But you can meditate in it. And let me also say this, that you can't meditate in something you don't know. If you are just getting started, then what I've just described is not going to be real functional for you. As a matter of fact, my life has nearly flip-flopped. When I first got started seeking the Lord, I would spend 13 hours a day just reading the Word because you know what? I didn't know what it said. And even though I might have read through it and heard references to this, I didn't know the context of it. I wasn't familiar enough with it that I could bring all of those statements back to my mind just by memory. But after I've read through the Word hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, I still dig in the Word. I still go look things up. I got some tremendous revelation just the first part of this week. And I have already received new, brand new things from the Word. So I still study like that, but now it's nearly flip-flopped. Instead of 13 hours in the Word and an hour meditating, I might spend an hour in the Word now and 13 hours meditating on the things that I've learned. You can't meditate on what you don't know. You first of all have to put it in before you can bring it out. And so if you are brand new to this, then you may have to start by just literally, I mean, shutting yourself up somewhere and taking every available moment you can get to start reading the Word of God. But ultimately, after you get to know some things, you can increase the amount of time you spend in the Word of God by just beginning to keep your mind stayed on God and meditating on these things over and over. And that's where the real power is released. I'd say this, that when I was spending 13 hours a day in the Word of God, I didn't have the Word of God producing in my life nearly as well as I do now. And I'm not spending 13 hours. Matter of fact, today, 
I got up and what did I do today? I'm trying to remember. I got some reports and looked at them and then I came in here early and I've been making tapes and so I haven't even opened the Bible except to share with you today. And yet the Word of God is working better in my life today than it was uh, 30-something years ago when I was spending 13 hours in it. And it's not because I'm discrediting just sitting there and studying the Word, but I'm saying it's how much you know. It's how much you're applying in your life. And when I came in today, man, I kept my mind stayed on the Lord. I'm in fellowship with the Lord. I've gotten to where I can keep my mind in tune to God and listen to God. And this is ultimately what you need to do. God's Word has to become a foundation. And I know what I'm saying just seems out of reach for some of you, but you can do it. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down of imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Notice that fifth verse. It says, bringing into captivity every thought, every thought. You can literally get to where every thought you have is captive to God and to His Word. Some of you are saying, can't happen. Well, don't wake me up because it's working. Amen. It can happen. And that is exactly the scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. That is the potential that we have. It doesn't happen without effort. You have to train your mind to be stayed upon the things of God. And the way that a lot of us watch television, do other things, it is counterproductive to it, but it can be done. And I tell you, this is where the benefit comes. Isaiah 26, 3 says, The Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusts in him. The Word of God is the way you focus and train your mind to stay, be focused and stayed upon God. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, To be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. And you want to know what carnal mindedness is? It's just not having all of your thoughts stayed upon God. That's what it's saying over here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. I hadn't even got time to turn over to it, but if you'll read it, meditate on Romans 8, 6, you'll find out that that's what it's talking about. You keep your mind stayed on God, and I guarantee you the Word of God will change you. It is a sure foundation. 